This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, June 14th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, San Miguel County resident dies of COVID-19. Rob Woodcox on surreal photography, smart plans to expand Montrose service, and a mountain weather forecast. But first... A 56-year-old Norwood man is in San Miguel County Jail after being charged with a number of felony and misdemeanors, including attempted murder in the first degree and assault in the first degree. Francis Escobar was arrested for stabbing a man in Norwood on Thursday, June 10th. According to the San Miguel County Sheriff's Office, the victim was transported and treated at Montrose Memorial Hospital. The man has been released from the hospital and is expected to recover from his injuries. The Sheriff's Office says the attack appears to be directed rather than a random act, and there is no threat to public safety. A San Miguel County resident has died due to COVID-19. The woman in her late 70s is the first resident to pass from the virus. Last week, um, she was hospitalized in Grand Junction um, for COVID-related concerns. Um, And it it really um, has just been this unfortunate um, event where um, this morning she passed. That's Grace Franklin, Public Health Director for San Miguel County. According to the Public Health Department, the woman was unvaccinated and involved in a gathering that led to an outbreak of cases. Franklin expresses her sincere condolences for those touched by the death. This is just um, a time for us to pause and really just acknowledge this community member who really um, had an impact on a lot of people's lives and um, just sit on that um, for now. Franklin adds the community should be proud of the way everyone has shown up to protect each other throughout the pandemic, but notes we're not fully out of the woods yet. It is really heartbreaking um, knowing um, that we've made it this far, but um, also there is no such thing as zero risk um, in when it comes to communicable disease. The county has seen an uptick in cases over the past few weeks. Public Health confirmed five new positive COVID cases over the past four days, with nine cases currently active. It may take a moment to realize the people in some of Rob Woodcox's photos are floating. The images look so real and unedited. Woodcox is a photographer whose work is currently on display at the Telluride Arts HQ Gallery. KOTO's Matt Hoish spoke with Woodcox about his approach and artistic philosophy. For anyone who has not been to Telluride Arts HQ to see your photographs, they are really striking. Can you just talk a bit about your photographic style and how you develop that style? When I was first getting into photography, I was really struck by artists like Richard Avedon, Annie Leibovitz, and also painters like uh, Rene Magritte, Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera. And I really loved the surrealism because I've always been really imaginative. You know, we're, we're brought into a society where everything's kind of the same, like you're expected to go down these certain paths and everyone's expected to have the partner and kids and all this stuff. And we're all capable of taking any path we want. And surrealism allows the brain to sort of take a journey into another realm, see other things that are possible. One of the interesting things, though, about surrealism is that you kind of almost really expect to see that more so in painting than photography. And for me, at least when I saw your photos, I was like, 
these look so realistic. Like it looks like this is an image of reality and your brain tells you it's not. And it's so interesting to play with that surreal approach, but with photography, which we always kind of see as a more objective thing almost. It's funny because for the first five years of my career, I traveled the world teaching workshops to students. And the way that I sort of described my style was realistic surrealism. So I feel like I kind of invented my own little niche within photography. But for me, that's what is so powerful about the forms that I create is that you can actually create surreal experiences within a real world. A big focus of your work specifically also is the environment. And I'm curious, what role do you think art can and should play in how we think about our relationship to the environment? Art is a universal language. It crosses all borders, all barriers, all religions, all languages. And I'm sure anyone at this point is aware we've done some damage, right? At the same time, there's so many wonderful organizations and people that are fighting back and saying, you know what? No, we have the ability to create change here. The role of art is to fill those gaps of education where maybe you know, someone doesn't have the resources or the privilege to attend a four-year college or a, a larger college, but they can learn through art. Or maybe people who are really busy with their careers or busy with running a corporation, maybe they, they need some education through visual art. And so it's cool because I think everybody has a role to play in this planet. I think nobody is here as a mistake. And it's really beautiful when you can create those conversations through art. And you're not only in Telluride to display work, you're also doing a bit of work. You've been collaborating with some local groups and organizations. Can you talk a bit about the local work you've been doing over the last few weeks? Both the Telluride AIDS Benefit and the Telluride Dance Collective approached me about doing some collaborations during my time with Telluride Arts. And so, yeah, we've been going out into nature. I've been scouting through hiking and driving hours and hours around Colorado. And we've basically found all these beautiful landscapes where uh, we've sort of created images that talk about that interconnectivity of humans and, and the way that we communicate and things like that. And when are people going to be able to see the works that you've been working on with locals in Telluride? So most of the work is going to be on auction at the Telluride AIDS Benefit. I won't be in town, unfortunately, but the photos will be there living in my place and on auction. And I just hope the best for, you know, the benefit and everyone that is coming to be a part of that. I hear that they put on a great show. Rob Woodcox is a fine art, commercial, and fashion photographer who currently has a collection of work called Bodies of Light on display at the Telluride Arts HQ Gallery. Rob, thank you so much for jumping into Kodo and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Workers coming into the Telluride region from Montrose may soon have another transit option. The San Miguel Authority for Regional Transportation is working on rolling out a second commuter van between the areas. Speaking at a smart board meeting last week, Executive Director David Averill says the move is in response to the impacts of the worker shortage in and around Telluride. A business owner reached out to me directly to see what we could do. The added vehicle would be a smart van that has largely been idle throughout the pandemic. We think we found two drivers, um, which is pretty much the minimum we need to get that thing back on the road. 
and a host of interested people to ride this, this second van. The route will operate as a van pool, so riders can purchase a seat for a month at a time. The transit body is also budgeted to purchase another van this year. Averill says Smart will put together a survey for restaurant owners to understand what employee needs for the van could look like. Where they're coming from, where they're going, what time of day I think is the bigger question for that group. Um, they're not typical commuter hours. We'll see what we can come up with there. However, Averill adds due to supply constraints, it may take a while for the new van to arrive. Board member Marty Prohaska is glad Smart is helping address a regional labor shortage. We've reached the tipping point and, and it's um, pretty scary, I think, for a lot of small business owners. But she also urges Averill to reach out beyond restaurant owners for input on how Smart can help. There certainly is a need among day laborers with construction, with landscaping, all industries, essentially. Averill agrees. Smart has not yet released exact dates for when the new vans would launch. In other smart news, people driving along the spur earlier this month might have noticed a bus stranded on the side of the road. Averill says the bus had to pull off when a radiator hose blew off and dumped its antifreeze. Mechanics, Averill notes, will look into why the hose blew off. We had another bus out there to pick up the passengers within 15 or 20 minutes, so everybody got to town okay. And then we had another bus take everybody home that night. So everybody got got to town, finished their trip, and then got home. Um, And then we had to tow that bus up to Montrose, and it's in the shop right now. Finally, Averill explains the newly launched Two Rivers Ilium service is off to a good start. When I was out putting signs up uh, last Friday, I stopped and talked to a couple business owners in the Ilium Industrial Park, and they're extremely excited about um, access for their employees and customers. According to Averill, the route has a consistent handful of riders, and he thinks that number will grow. The magic of storytelling is coming to Mountain Village this week. Telluride Theatre and the Wilkinson Public Library's Books Alive program will be at the Mountain Village Farmer's Market on Wednesday. It's part of our kids' education program, and it's really to promote literacy through theatre and fun. And we choose a book each time, or a few books, sometimes we meld books together, and we theatricalize them. That's Sasha Sullivan, Artistic Director of Telluride Theatre and Director of the Books Alive performance. In the first showing of the summer, Books Alive is performing Rubia and the Three Osos, a bilingual adaptation of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. The library approached us about doing some more bilingual programming, um, you know, a little bit of something for everybody. We live in a town that has a lot of Spanish speakers and English speakers, and a lot of our children are, are in a bilingual program and are learning Spanish. So um, the library actually gave it to me as one of the books that kids love to hear because it has the Spanish words in there. Books Alive actors will perform Rubia and the Three Osos on Wednesday, June 16th at 1 p.m. in Heritage Plaza in Mountain Village. The show is free and open to all ages. Governor Jared Polis signed several stimulus bills into law on Monday that he says will accelerate the state's recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. KOTO's Scott Franz has more. One bill spends up to $10 million subsidizing large weddings, conferences, and festivals over the next two years. Event organizers could get up to 10% of their costs covered if they fill enough hotel rooms and generate a, quote, significant economic benefit to a host community. Supporters, including Republican Matt Soper of Delta County, 
predict it could benefit thousands of gatherings. We're throwing a little bit of uh, seed money out there to stimulate the economy and hopefully get a larger return on our investment. The subsidy program must have a statewide reach, and it will not cover the costs of alcohol. Polis also signed a bill today spending $23 million on the recovery of the creative arts industry. I'm Scott Franz in Denver. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper are asking President Biden to give Colorado more money to deal with wildfires and drought conditions. They say the funding is critical because half of the state is currently in drought, and the Weather Service has issued an extreme fire warning for northwest Colorado for the first time in 15 years. Meanwhile, state lawmakers recently passed several bills to better prepare for wildfires after a record 2020 season. They range from purchasing a more advanced firefighting helicopter to charging homeowners in danger zones new insurance fees to raise an estimated $5 million a year for mitigation projects. Water supplies are so tight in the West that many states keep close watch over every creek, river, ditch, and reservoir. A complex web of laws and rules make sure water is put to use. To prevent any waste, Colorado has started cracking down on what may seem like a drop in the proverbial bucket. From KUNC, Luke Runyon explains. Martin Mendine's family ranch is a wide, grassy expanse near southern Colorado's Spanish Peaks. A fork of the Purgatory River meanders through the land, which supports about 100 cattle and herds of elk. Migratory sandhill cranes pass through each year. And uh, in the summer, you'll get lightning bugs right in here. It's wet enough to support all this life, in part because of a cascade of five small ponds held in place by dams made of dirt. The ponds are more than 80 years old, he says. They were built when his grandfather tended the ranch. So we've been running this water now for, you know, damn near a century, and they're telling me I can't, can't use it. They is the state of Colorado. Mendine got a notice recently saying the ponds have been identified as potentially illegal. It says the water rights to create them don't exist. And to be compliant, he either needs to drain them or come up with a state-approved plan to fill them from a different water source. It came to about ten dollars to $15,000 a year per pond to keep them. I I don't have that kind of scratch. I'm just trying to water some cattle up here, you know? To him, it seems like a lot of noise over a few tiny ponds. It just doesn't seem like it would be even worth their time. Our basin's been over-appropriated for a long period of time. That's Bill Tyner. He's Colorado's division engineer for the Arkansas River Basin, where Mendine's Ranch is located. Meaning that our natural water supplies are, uh, generally speaking, always less than the uh, demand for water in the Arkansas Basin. Tyner says the state has identified about 10,000 illegal ponds just in his region. He likens it to a string of pearls. Each pearl isn't that valuable or consequential on its own. But when pulled together, it can be worth thousands. The number of puns was overwhelming to the point that we could not afford to not address the situation. We we, um, 
just had to take action. His office is now in the midst of a systematic review of all ponds in the Arkansas Basin, everything from pools for livestock watering to decorative fountains in business parks. The problem, Tyner says, is evaporation. Water in a shallow pond evaporates more than when it's flowing through a narrow stream. And the state views evaporated water as wasted water. Um, some of these bigger ponds can create some awfully big depletions, and the cumulative effect of thousands of them um, produces a problem. When the state starts coming for your pond, often the first call is to a water lawyer, like attorney Matt Machado of the front-range firm Lyons Gaddis. Some of the landowners that have ponds down there, are they're in a tough spot. A recent dispute over ponds went all the way to the state Supreme Court last year, where the state prevailed. The ponds in question were drained, and the owner was ordered to pay almost $100,000 in fines. Machado's takeaway from that ruling? You know, once the state finds an illegal pond and says you need to drain it, um, you better do it. Martin Mendine understands that the little ponds on his ranch are part of a much bigger watershed. And I am more than willing to to work. I'm malleable. I'll work with them and do whatever I can. But he says drying up the ponds will deprive his cattle of water. That'll hurt the tenant rancher who looks after them and his ability to sell them. Without the ponds, the ranch's viability is uncertain, he says. If you're going to take my lifeblood, I've got a problem with you. Mendine says he's still looking at different legal avenues to keep the ponds, but hasn't yet retained a lawyer. I'm Luke Runyon in Weston, Colorado. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 50 degrees. Tuesday should be sunny with haze in the morning and a high in the mid-80s. Tuesday night expect mostly clear skies with a low around 50 degrees. Wednesday, there is a slight chance of showers with mostly sunny skies and a high around 85 degrees. Wednesday night should be partly cloudy with a low around 50. This has been the news for Monday, June 14th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hey, this is Teresa at the Telluride Historical Museum with your Miner's Minute. On May 17, 1896, 29-year-old May Canfield died of a drug overdose in Telluride's Red Light District. Also known as Trixie Green, May worked the line as a prostitute, and in this profession, drug use and suicide was the norm. Perhaps she was lured to the booming town of Telluride with dreams of finding fortune, and was instead left to struggle in the sex trade. So when no one came forth to claim her body, she was buried in one of the many unmarked graves of our Lone Tree Cemetery. Legend has it that May had hoped to marry her client, William Hosking, who worked at Lewis Mine. Yet when he abandoned her for the mine, she turned to morphine. After her death, William's friends reported that he was haunted by her in his sleep and that her apparition followed him deep into the mine. To see and learn more about May Trixie Green and other everyday heroes of Telluride's past, join us this Friday for my personal favorite program, a tour of Lone Tree Cemetery. This is our first of three extra cemetery tours that will be held before our regularly scheduled tours, which start in the fall. Tickets are only $15 or $10 for museum members, and advanced registration is required. 
Please note that these tours will then meet at the East Columbia Gate entrance at Lone Tree Cemetery. So again, that's Friday the 18th at 1 o'clock, and you can call us to sign up in advance. You can also sign up for our historic walking tours of town with Ashley Bowling. Those are Tuesdays and Thursdays at 1 p.m., and these tours meet at the museum. Finally, don't forget to bring your kids to Pan for Gold and check out our brand new annual exhibit titled Outbreak, Epidemics in a Connected World. You can visit the museum Mondays through Saturdays, 11 to 5 p.m., Thursdays until 7 p.m., and remember, locals get in free on Thursdays. Thanks, Kodo. You're a rare medium. Well done. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.